0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we learned about cannabis cooking, chatted about gems on our South Side, and dove into the Democratic primaries. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 6, 2020. Ben Jarofsky chatted with cannabis cook and entrepreneur Edgar Ramon about underground dinners in Chicago. Ramon, who transitioned from the financial world, explains why cannabis is like derivatives, discussed dosing in food, and talked about the issues facing the federal government. The Ben Jarofsky Show airs every Friday at noon.
1: You're welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, inf- what was that,
2: infused, what was the word she in, used? Infused, so cannabis-infused dinner parties. That's the business model that we're in. We uh, We host and curate cannabis-infused dinner experiences. What does that mean? We work with chefs who take the cannabis plant and find ways to infuse that into fine dining. Multiple ways of doing that. I don't want to bore you on how they do it, but it is an ingredient that they love to cook with. But it also gives consumers an alternative to consuming cannabis in a completely different way. We thought of this because we, I believe that food is the number one common denominator in all of life. Right, and cannabis is starting to become a pretty common denominator as well. Starting to become? (laughs) Well, I mean, as you mentioned, there's baby steps, right? You go, you start somewhere, and you kind of grow from there. But it really ties everything in, and everybody's finding a way to tie it into whatever they're doing—politics, business, economics, social equity. Right. So it is a, it is becoming again a very common denominator out there. But the business model is cannabis-infused dinner parties. That's what we do. We threw one on Valentine's Day. Lisa uh, was there, experienced it. It was um, 50-so people in Wicker Park at a uh, art gallery. So very proud of at least coming out as legalization progresses. We wanted to make sure that we weren't doing these in the typical speakeasy kind of underground way. We wanted to make sure that we were a bit out in the open. We, we did a big... 300-person New Year's Eve event at a event space, at a premier event space in the West Loop, Fulton Market District area, and as we all know, that was slightly before adult use became legal, so it was really progressive. Um, it was really groundbreaking. Wait, it was New Year's Eve? It was New Year's Eve. So technically, it was still uh, illegal. From, yeah, from the adult use perspective, um, absolutely. Unless
1: everybody so. said, I got a headache. I need-. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. Medical marijuana jokes. Uh, but continue, sorry.
2: No, so we, um, I mean, what we do is, the state of Illinois hasn't come out with their event licenses yet, or mm-hmm. haven't come out with their consumption license rules yet. Um, they're still working on those, but what we do is... Our, our events are by private invitation only, so mm-hmm. all of our guests become members of the Chamba Life uh, group, and it's a gathering of private members is the way we look at it. So until we get more clarity on the rules as far as consumption lounges, events, things of that nature, we operate under those. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Uh, just the notion of infusing
1: food with uh, cannabis. I, I'm talking about. I'm thinking of the evolution that I just described. For where we had to get the state of Illinois to tolerate uh, medical marijuana. You know what I'm saying? Somebody's really sick, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's still we're still struggling with this issue with, with, with kids who are sick. Uh, and do, are we anywhere near the point in this state where, like, a restaurant can openly uh, promote itself? for its uh, cannabis-infused cuisine? Are we, are
2: we at that point, anywhere near that point? No, unfortunately not. Um, it's a bit of a tricky subject because once you're able to just open your doors to the public, anybody can walk in off the street, you have no information about that person's tolerance levels, previous use, et cetera. I mean, so it's a little bit difficult, too, because when you consume it, in terms of eating it, your body has to digest it. So that means it can take hours before it even really kicks in. Unlike alcohol, where you slam four or five drinks right away, you're probably gonna start to notice an effect, at least most, I guess most people would. Um, Cannabis, you can consume it especially as you're eating it and it may not kick in, therefore they may leave. They may be completely gone from the restaurant and something occurs. And I just don't think that there's any way that, you know, there's a way of really protecting that. So what we do again is we ask people for tolerance levels. We have a consultation with them. We discuss, you know, what happens if they do start to feel over elevated, under elevated, things of that nature. It's a lot for a restaurant to kind of really bite off and and, and handle. Not only that, I mean, we just don't have any real means of of policing it once, you, you know, somebody's out there and they're driving, there's no breathalyzer, there's no real means of detecting that somebody has overconsumed or is intoxicated or whatnot. So it's, I think in our lifetime it'll happen, but it's not right around the corner. Is
1: this legal right now in the state of Illinois to have a party in which uh, food is infused with cannabis?
2: I'm not a lawyer. Uh, But the way I understand, I spent a lot of time, and still do, on understanding the laws. Um, The laws state that private consumption is legal, Mm -hmm. right? So again, we do it by private invitation. We do it in locations that are not open to the public when we have them, whether we're renting them or we're using them. They're not open to the public. It clearly states on there, close for a private event. Um, Our invitations all talk about that. So private consumption is legal. Uh, But again, there's still there's still no real rules in terms of having them in a open space where people can just come in publicly. So we don't do that yet.
1: And do do the people know when they come to these private parties that, in fact, they're going to have uh, cannabis infused food uh, on the table?
2: 100 percent. Right. And that's part of
3: the law. It says you must let people know it's
2: infused. And we actually use a lot of language that the state of Illinois uses, too, to kind of give people the warning that they're going to be consuming THC and what the effects are, things of that nature. We we try to educate them on these things, but for the most part, most of our guests have been consumers for quite some time. <laughs> I love how you put that, man. Uh, <laughs> I mean,
1: and something I'd like for you to talk about is, you know, <laughs> cannabis has been a unifier. You know, it's sort of part of the culture that, you know, you pass the joints around, you share it, and at your dinner, will you talk about like the mix of people that were there?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've we we've had politicians and lawyers and doctors and You know, it's amazing that it really ranges. On New Year's Eve with 300 people, we had, first, all of our events are 21 and over. That is a no-brainer, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, But we've had people that were 21 all the way up to 80, I think Mm -hmm. we had. Business owners, influential business owners here in the city, uh, restaurant owners, caterers, you know, things of that nature. So it's a pretty diverse group. Um, it's pretty amazing that now that it is legal you are starting to hear certain people come out and say oh like I remember back when I you know used to smoke or I remember back when I tried it and you know really thinking about doing it again or they are still consuming and now they're happy to be able to say I went to the dispensary yeah
1: by the way I uh, I just want to point out, we're gonna get to the federal issue I Edgar and I share a uh, a passion on this topic, but in the debate on the Tuesday, the Democratic debate, I don't know if you either one of you heard it. Michael Bloomberg, who's still stuck in the past on on his attitude about cannabis, uh, was saying, "Well, we need decriminalization. I'm really worried about what it's going to do to brains, young kids." And it, 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 it was, and I'm just sitting there listening to him, thinking, "All of your friends, your entire." I know people that work for you. I know people at Wall Street community. I know like the the your little world v- group that you hang with. They're either smoking it, eating it in their food, you know what I'm saying? And it's just to pretend as though it it there's still that existence, Edgar, that old like reefer madness syndrome. It still it still exists on a federal level. It's very it's very scary. But before we get to that, I'm gonna deal with the issue of the tolerance levels, different tolerance levels. Uh, if you contrast a dentist to me, he can handle like bongs and bongs of of cannabis, <laughs> whereas uh, if I'm in the car with him, just the secondhand smoke, hot boxing. Yeah, it just uh, <laughs> just threw Dennis under the bus. Yes, you did. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, so how do you deal with if you're having a dinner party? How do you deal with the issue of the dentists and the bend and the contrasting tolerance levels?
2: So first of all, uh, I'd love to talk more about the Bloomberg thing. I come from the finance world, so I spent 20 plus years in the the, the financial world. So, uh, but, Funny enough though it's usually the people that claim that they have the highest tolerance levels that you got to watch out after. Mm, hear that Dennis? The people that, the, usually the people that, <laughs> that will tell you that they have a low tolerance levels, they pretty much police themselves. They mm-hmm. they know that they're a bit nervous, right? So they know that they have, you know, the ability to push the plate away if they want to, right? Or or set a little bit aside, right? But they'll come up to me and ask me questions about so you know, we we try to discuss at every dinner, especially the smaller ones, we always discuss the milligrams per dish, we talk about the strains that we use, we talk about the effects that you can expect off of these strains. Sometimes we even time them so that we know that the effects are kicking in. But when people are a bit nervous, I'm a big believer that the plant in itself has many medicinal purposes. And again, this medicinal recreational thing is such a topic of conversation. I think it's all medicinal, <laughs> but uh, but the fact is that people are gonna talk about it and they're gonna debate it. Um, but we also, I'm a big believer in that it's not just the psychoactive effect you're looking for, you're also looking for the body effect. So we try to introduce CBD, not just THC, into our meals, into the into the entire experience. We might do welcome drinks or pairing drinks that are CBD only, because the CBD actually will have the ability to counter uh, act against the THC. So when people do are nervous about getting too much THC, Mm -hmm. we can substitute or add in CBD into their particular meals. Just
1: help people out. differentiate between CBD and uh,
2: THC? So those are the two main cannabinoids inside of the, the cannabis plant, mm-hmm. right? Those there's, there's arguably over 400 cannabinoids and THC is the one that people seek after when they're looking to get the high, mm-hmm. get that psychoactive high. CBD is probably the one that's more associated with healing benefits, so inflammation, pain, things of that nature. So you'll see CBD everywhere. CBD is now federally legal. That's the hemp farm bill that passed. That's what's federally legal. That's why you see it in gas stations and CVS's and Walmart and every place else. That's why a lot of people are starting to even consider doing infused meals and restaurants would be able to do this with CBD only. The reality is, though, the majority of the population that's pro legalization is more interested in the (laughs) THC cannabinoid.
0: Mario Smith spoke to Lee Bay, author and photographer. Bay discussed his new work, Southern Exposure, a collection of photographs of Southside Chicago architecture. Bay talked about the neglect the Southside's houses and buildings have endured, the forgotten architects who built them, and the wonder that still exists south of Madison. News from the service entrance airs Thursdays at 2.
3: But anyway, Lee Bay is on the phone with me. He is a Chicago Sun-Times editorial board member. He's an amazing photographer and the author of the book Southern Exposure, The Overlooked Architecture of Chicago's South Side, courtesy of Northwestern University Press. That's the publisher of the book. You can reach him at LeeBay.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Bay, what's up, brother?
4: Hey, hey, man. Good Good to talk to you, brother.
3: It's good to be talked to, my friend. Um... You, sir, I was told uh, that there is a uh, a TED Talk with you and our other guest today, Leslie Honoré. You're doing a TED Talk?
4: I am, man. My first one. So, you know, got to get that thing down right. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it.
3: What was the impetus of them reaching out to you for this? Was it because of the book or because you're just an awesome dude and they knew they needed to get their Q rating up? And who else? Who better to do that than you? <laughs>
4: Well, you know, I think the book helped uh, certainly, and uh, you know, and in addition to the book, you know, I've been talking and you know, kind of uh, lecturing about the South Side. as you know, I live on the South Side, grew up on the South Side, and um, and the the the, um, the TED talk, the sort of series of us that I've been talking, you know, i kind of talking about the South Side and Grand Boulevard, Bronzeville area. So I think all that kind of came together.
3: I've noticed that um, with your work particularly, and we, we've kind of chatted about this, your eye is different than most when it comes to looking at architecture. Where, where did you develop that skill? And as a photographer, you, you capture stuff. I mean, it, the, the, for example, the cleaners on 79th, uh, right by what used to be the Rhodes Theater and all that stuff,
4: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That
3: that building, people drive past that thing all the time on the 9. They don't even pay attention to it as much as they used to, but you managed to capture it in a way that a lot of people don't look at it, and when they look at it in the book, they're like, "Oh my god, that's amazing. Where is that?" How are how did you develop that particular skill?
4: You know, a lot of that comes from uh, my childhood. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, my father uh and and, and mother as well, but my father especially you know, had a thing for architecture, so it would be nothing for us to sort of check out a building or point out one. We were on the, you know, when I was a kid, and we were on the way somewhere. But you know, also, you know, I was architecture critic here at the Sun Times. You know, my first go around at the Sun Times, you know, for for five years, and you know, so you know, at that point, you know, you you get a chance to learn how to look at a building critically. But 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 some of that, man, you know, you know, you know, I think what doesn't get talked about enough is. The interest that um, black people have, uh, you know, in Chicago, in our architecture. I mean, if we're on the South Side or on the West Side, then I mean, we're surrounded by beautiful schools and you know, classical buildings and that kind of stuff. And after a while, you know, they become familiar to you, and you can look at them in a way almost like an old friend, right? You know, you know, um, you know. I, I've had people. You know, describe buildings to me that they want me to come see, and 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 talking about them. You know, these are regular bike folk, these architecture critics, but they describe them in familiar ways. You know, you know, they check out this, check out that, look at that brickwork, and all that kind of stuff. Like they're talking about an old friend, and and I think that you know that's that factors along with it too.
3: You capture, um, and I'm I'm just, I'm going to get off of it for a minute. This book is wildly popular, by the way. Uh, uh, the, the, the Southern Exposure book you, yeah you did good on this one <laughs> um, not that you've done bad before but you've done good on this one um, what did you find when you were taking these pictures of this wonderful architecture on the south side that is really overlooked um, which was what? Uh, please say the building I think you're going to say what building was it that gave you the most the biggest rush the one you're like wow I'm, I've got to get a picture of this building
4: you know, I think I think our alma mater, Chicago Vocational, uh, really, um, you know, you know, really was one of those buildings. And you know, Pride Cleaners was too, but uh, but but CVS High School was because it's a building that many Chicagoans who are not from the South Side they only see it on the Skyway when they're leaving town or coming into town, and uh, it's a building that wants to be looked at closer. It was designed to be looked at closer. So to be able to take my alma mater and put it in a book that I'm that I'm right that I've written and that it earns, it earned its place in there. It isn't in there because, you know, I went there. It's in there because architecturally it deserves to be talked about, talked about, talked about the city's great buildings, and and that it hasn't been. And, uh, and just the, um, the discussion after the building has, after the book has come out, they had the discussion about CVS now and Bowen to, 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 to a great extent, too, nearby. Um, it, it, it's been good. That's been good.
3: I am so glad you said that because that building, when you're on the skyway, on your way into the city and you can see just how big the campus is, it's a real campus, man. And that those buildings up close, it's like even when I went there, I was like, there's something different about this place. When I was a little kid and we used to ride past CVS, I said, I want to go to school there. Because the building just attracted me so much, and you did a wonderful job of capturing that. You're back at the sun Times now. What is
4: that mm-hmm. like? You know, it's interesting. I came back in December. You know, in 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 some respects, the book kind of you know helped that come out come about. I mean, it turns out that after leaving the paper in uh, 2001, you know, that's almost 20 years ago as architecture critic. You know, the, the book showed me that I really had something else to say, uh, and so. And that, and that, um, not only, you know, am I talking about architecture, but also the civic forces that are around the city that, you know, on one hand, you know, create architecture, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, do other things too, from, you know, you know, from, you know, new laws to, uh, you know, policing and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so what the book showed me was that still has something to say. And when they came to me to say, um, after sometimes to say, hey, do you want to come back and then join the editorial board? Uh, I realized that yeah, I do. Man, let's come back and let's see what let's see what I can do. And uh, it feels good. I mean, after the the third hour of the first day, it was like I'd never left. Wow, I
3: am I am really glad that you're in that place um, with the newspaper industry changing rapidly. Looking at the Chicago Tribune, almost. Everybody of note is gone from the Tribune today. The editor was fired or asked to leave, depending on who you ask. Um, newspapers like the Sun Times, though are still surviving, uh, as a result, papers like um, the Reader uh, are, are are asking people to help with with donations and such. What is happening? And are we watching just the total diminishing of the newspaper industry, or do you think that there's still a chance that some of these papers, like the the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Tribune, the Sun Times, uh, the L.A. Times, managed to survive this? And and is there an opportunity for it to flourish, or, or are we looking at the end of the print part of our news?
4: You know, I think that uh, you know this was a long shakeout season, and I think that the people who can figure out. Uh, how to you know how to survive it are doing well you know the the New York Times with the online subscriptions through the roof, same with uh, the Washington post. Uh, I, I, I think locally you know I think the two papers are still kind of figuring things out you know and, and how to and where to get at you know where to, where there, where does the ad revenue come from? You know some of these things are uh, obviously way above my pay grade but what what's been good is um, you know from a writer's standpoint is having to figure out how to make the product more uh, appealing, you know, in whatever form it comes in. Um, and the fact that, that that readers have a lot more access to information, you know, it makes us sharper as writers, makes us sharper as, as reports. I mean, you know, I'm doing editorials and so is the the whole team here. And, you know, we, we know that, you know, we got to get it right, right? I mean, we, we always did have to get it right, but we know we have to get it right now because, uh, you know, with a few keystrokes, uh, a reader can say, "Does that make sense?" And with a few key- keystrokes, find out whether what you're telling them is the fact that you're telling them, whatever the fact is, whether it's true or whether it's whether 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 it's bogus. Um, I, I think here in Chicago, I mean, there is there is you know there's kind of an affection for the Sun Times, particularly you know in the hood and the south and west sides, and and I think that um, to the extent we can increase um, coverage so that it reflects these neighborhoods or reflects these concerns. Uh, you know, the diversity of opinion that's there, uh, the diversity of people that's there. I mean, I I think, um, you know, we we survived.
3: I want to thank you so much, Lee Bay, for being on the show. I know you're a busy man. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. If you see Evan F. Moore walking around there, tell him I said, what's up?
4: I sure will. (laughs) That's my
3: man. And uh, I, I, I am really looking forward to the TED Talk. How can people get involved and find out where your TED Talk is?
4: You know, um, you know. I think um, if if you uh, if you look up TED Talk or TEDx uh, and my name, you know, you'll find uh, the whole roster of people and where it is. Is you know, it's at the DeSalle Museum. Uh, you know, um, uh, next week in the morning, Monday, I think it is. I should know this, right? Uh, Monday, and uh, and you know, it, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Now, Leslie, I'm looking forward to her. Uh, I'm hoping I don't follow her because she's a rough actor follower. She's a tough right. actor follow man but uh, but uh, I will enjoy either way.
3: Lee Bay the the man ladies and gentlemen the author of the you? book southern exposure the overlooked architecture of chicago south side published by northwestern university press our friend pernisha jones over there and uh, he's a sometimes editorial board member and an amazing photographer and a really really good dude and this is not the last time that we'll talk brother i'm looking forward to talking to you again and i got to get my copy of the book
4: indeed indeed i'll bring you one i'll bring you one when we talk again
3: right on lee thank you so much man i really appreciate you being on the show today
4: man. Good to be here. Thanks. Size matters.
5: Size matters. Smith. Kyle Seisman
6: Hey, what's up, Kyle? You want to go to the bagel dumpster?
5: Not right now, Jess. I'm kind of worried about Jamie in there. He doesn't seem himself.
6: Oh, you mean he's not acting evil, paranoid, and kind of mean?
5: Oh, no, I'm sure he's still all that. He threw away my newspaper blankets this morning. Said it
6: was a fire hazard or something, but... Nah, he, he looks real upset. Huh. Yeah, he does. Do you think somebody was nice to him and he can't handle it? Maybe
5: we should ask him. Hey, Jamie, you okay in there? Oh, hey.
7: Hey, guys.
6: Hey, guys? Where's the snide remark about my light fingers or Kyle's heavy odor?
7: Uh, not not today, guys. I'm, I'm just not in the mood.
5: Something must be really wrong. This ain't like you. And it smells real ripe huh, on account of sleeping on that flooded part of the basement all week. Yeah, you,
7: you have an odor. It's okay.
6: okay. Okay, what is going on here?
7: Well, the radio station keeps going on and off the air. It's really frustrating. It's the damn connection to the tower.
6: Well, can't you fix it?
7: Got $200,000? <sighs> It's the internet provider we use that acts
6: limitless. Oh yeah, the easy, awesome one.
7: Ha, more like the one that always drops out. It just kills our signal.
6: I
5: think I can solve the problem, James.
7: You? Kyle, last time you did anything with the internet, it ended up siphoning everyone's credit cards to Latvia.
6: As seen memorably in Size Matters 74.
7: Thank you, Jess. Now seriously, I
5: know we can fix (sighs) this. fine. I'm weak. Kyle, what's your idea? Undertown's internet. Uh, what with the who now? I got some guys down here in Undertown who got their own nuclear web thing. Hey, I don't understand it, but they get all the porn they need.
6: Is it Undertown porn? Wait, don't don't answer that. Hey, you were the
5: one that sent me all the links to the sandwiches. That's
7: food porn. You don't. Know, never mind, Kyle. Sure, have your mole men come by and talk to me. I've fallen that far.
6: Dang, what the heck is that?
7: That is a thirty-meter Earth station.
6: It looks like a giant satellite dish. Is the copro's roof going to support that? Uh, huh, you know, I hadn't thought of
7: that. That's eh, over at Billy's place. If anything happens, I'm sure it will be fine.
6: What a tender heart you have.
7: Yeah, but check this out. Kyle actually made good.
6: Wow, clear as a bell.
7: Yeah, even better. These guys are installing it for free. All I have to do is broadcast some crap in the overnight hours. Man, it's saving us thousands.
6: Like infomercials? Are you allowed to do that?
7: No, it's more like folk music and some avant-garde stuff. It's it's not real different than what we actually do anyway, and if by God, Jess, if you tell them that... Hey,
6: come on. You know I'd never yuck your yum.
7: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. This is just taking a lot out of me.
6: Yeah, I mean, I get it. Uh, when the radio goes down, you can't make the regular offerings to your Dark Lord and Master. Yeah,
7: exact. Wait, how did you know about that?
5: Hey, Jameson, it looks like we're all set and locked in up here. I just gotta give you the tape for the overnights.
7: Kyle, listen to some of this stuff. It's It's kind of weird. Are you sure this is what they want?
5: Yeah, that's what Igor tells me. Okay, hell with it. Kyle! Jess! What the truck? can a guy get some shut-eye around
7: here? It's four in the afternoon, and I just got a visit from the FBI.
6: Now, now, what does that stand for? Don't play
7: dumb with me, Jess. Kyle's friend, Igor, was transmitting spy signals overnight on our air. All those goofy numbers was spy stuff? Oh, Yeah. Oh, the FBI was super pissed.
5: Jeez, I'm sorry. I just wanted to keep the radio on the air. I guess I gotta take all that stuff down now, huh? I'll get the hammer. Uh,
7: well, mm, actually, no. Huh? Yeah, the FBI let us off the hook, as long as we broadcast some of their spy stuff.
6: The FBI spies? Yeah,
7: all the time. It's usually on people trying to find out whether a cop shot their kid or grandma's protesting pollution. Stuff like that.
6: How patriotic.
7: Oh,
5: you know it. Gotta keep America safe. So everything worked out? That's unusual.
6: Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, somebody's usually pretty badly injured by this point in the skit.
7: Yeah, I mean, radio's on the air. The internet's better than ever.
6: Yeah, I guess that's
7: a win.
5: Yeah, well, I guess we better play the theme.
7: Ooh, look at this. An email from a Russian gas company. We're wealthy with stock. Oh, all I gotta do is click this link. Jamie! Jamie! I'll
5: get the hammer.
7: This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump's purge of allegedly disloyal workers continues. Trump sues the Times for libel. Democrats vote as Joe Biden surges. Trump's son claims Democrats want millions of people to die. And the administration calls the coronavirus pandemic a hoax to take down the president. Wait, is that is that right? It is? These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1134, February 27th. Trump appointed Vice President Mike Pence to coordinate his administration's response to the coronavirus before claiming his administration has the situation, quote, under control. Trump then accused journalists of making the situation, quote, look as bad as possible. Trump also contradicted federal health officials, warning that the spread of coronavirus in the United States was inevitable. I don't think it's inevitable. Pence's first move was to gag scientists and prevent people from issuing statements without running them by him first. The coronavirus epidemic is now producing more new cases outside China than inside. The United States now has at least 100 cases, including a patient in California who is not known to have traveled to a country with an outbreak or be connected to a known patient. Japan has now canceled all school for a month in that country. Saudi Arabia put the annual pilgrimage to Mecca on pause as well. Meanwhile, a whistleblower alleged the Department of Health and Human Services improperly deployed a dozen workers to coronavirus quarantine locations who were, quote, not properly trained or equipped to operate in a public health emergency situation. The complaint alleges that the workers were potentially exposed to coronavirus. The workers then took commercial flights back to their offices throughout the country. Stephen Miller has ordered the Justice Department to establish a new office to strip naturalized citizens of their rights. The denaturalization section will review cases where individuals are believed to have illegally obtained citizenship. Justice Department lawyers believe denaturalization lawsuits could now be used against immigrants who have not committed crimes. And a court ruled that Trump can withhold law enforcement grant money from so-called sanctuary cities. Chicago and New York sued Trump after the Justice Department said in 2017 it would withhold funds if states and cities don't provide immigration enforcement officials with access to jails. Millions of dollars in police funding is at stake. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow suggested that investors should take advantage of the stock market swoon over coronavirus fears by, quote, buying these dips because the virus story is not going to last forever. And Trump has sued The New York Times for libel over a 2019 opinion article. Claiming that the Times has, quote, engaged in a systematic pattern of bias by falsely reporting as fact a conspiracy with Russia, Trump accused the newspaper of intentionally publishing a false story about a quid pro quo between Russian officials and Trump's 2016 campaign. The Times defended the opinion piece by former executive editor Max Frankel, saying, quote, Trump is trying to punish an opinion writer for having an opinion he finds unacceptable. Day 1135, February 28th. Donald Trump Jr., appearing on Fox News, claimed Democrats want millions of people to die, quote, for them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. Mick Mulvaney said that Americans should ignore the media's coverage of the coronavirus, claiming the media covered Trump's impeachment because they th- thought it would bring down the president, Mulvaney then claimed the media only switched to covering the coronavirus because, quote, they think this is what brings down Trump's administration. He then urged Americans to, quote, turn off your televisions for 24 hours. As a point of fact, the news media covered impeachment and is covering the coronavirus because it's news. When asked if he'd take his children to Disney World over spring break, Mike Pence wouldn't answer. After the press conference, it was announced that the Defense Intelligence Agency has banned all international and domestic temporary duty assignment travel. Meanwhile, Trump is considering using a 70-year-old Defense Production Act to speed up the manufacturing of medical supplies in a potential coronavirus outbreak. And the Surgeon General of the United States, Jerome Adams, tweeted in all caps for the public to, quote, Stop buying masks. They are ineffective. Trump said in a meandering press conference about the virus, quote, it's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. And from our shores, we, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. Healthy people should be fine. A federal appeals court has blocked Trump's remain in Mexico immigration policy. The court ruled the policy is, quote, invalid in its entirety due to its inconsistency with federal law and should be enjoined in its entirety. Some 60,000 people have been sent back to Mexico since 2019. And a separate court ruled that former White House counsel Don McGahn does not have to comply with the subpoena seeking his testimony. The House had subpoenaed McGahn to answer questions about the obstruction of the Don Mueller investigation. Day 1136, February 29th. Joe Biden stormed to a huge victory in South Carolina, effectively resetting his stuttering campaign and giving Bernie Sanders his first real competition. Tom Steyer and Pete Buttigieg both bowed out of the race after that result. Super Tuesday now represents a make or break day for many of the marginal candidates. Trump's director of the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement suppressed guidance when he overhauled a well-drilling safety rule. Scott and Jill personally ordered an engineer to strip out a note that agency staffers, quote, wanted no change to the testing frequency of critical safety equipment and that staff does not agree with the industry that an industry-crafted protocol for managing well pressure is sufficient. The Deepwater Horizon well famously failed due to inadequate testing of blowout preventers, causing billions of dollars in damage and hardship in the Gulf of Mexico. Trump announced he would nominate Representative John Ratcliffe as his permanent director of national intelligence. Trump had previously tried to elevate Ratcliffe, but the nomination fell apart over questions about Ratcliffe's experience and suspicions that he padded his resume. Ratcliffe, however, is a rabid partisan, and Trump called him, quote, an outstanding man of great talent. Trump told the Department of Veterans Affairs to, quote, corner the market on a new antidepressant drug promoted by a group of unofficial advisors at Mar-a-Lago. Those advisors, which include Marvel owner Ike Perlmutter, worked with the VA and Johnson & Johnson on suicide prevention awareness. Trump later asked the VA to endorse a Johnson & Johnson drug and corner the market for Spravato. Spurvato, which has a black box warning, has been widely questioned over its safety and efficacy. It is a minor chemical variant of the inexpensive old drug ketamine. It is also now being sold at an outrageously high price. Day 1137, March 1st. Trump called the coronavirus the Democrats' new hoax and accused them of politicizing the deadly virus, which has now spread to China, Japan, South Korea, Iran, Italy, and the United States. Trump called the press hysterical about the virus, downplaying its dangers, which he constantly compared to the flu. The coronavirus is significantly more contagious than the flu, and a vaccine for it is at least a year to 18 months away. New evidence suggests the coronavirus was allowed to spread in Washington state, while Trump and his team claimed the outbreaks was a hoax. Two have died. Rhode Island and New York, both on the other coast, now have their first cases. The response from D.C. has been shambolic, with Trump focused more on the bizarre fixation the outbreak is a plot to oust him from office. In a related story, Vice President Mike Pence said this weekend he agreed with Trump's son, who had claimed that Democrats want millions to die from the virus. Six have now died from the coronavirus in the United States, with at least 100 cases nationwide on both coasts. Gene sequencing suggests the virus could have been active in the United States for weeks. A partisan hack at the Interior Department deliberately inserted misleading information about climate change into the agency's scientific reports. Inder Gokleani pressured scientists to include misleading claims about climate change into at least nine different reports on major watersheds. Known internally as the Gok's uncertainty language, the reports inaccurately claim there is a lack of consensus among scientists that the Earth is warming, and included very debunked claims that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is somehow beneficial. March 2nd. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a third major challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Democratic officials asked the court to intervene in part to put the fate of Obamacare into the public eye before the November elections. The case involves claims by Republicans that the law is somehow unconstitutional because the Senate removed the penalty for not having health insurance. While this is legally dubious, a Texas judge agreed with that logic, setting up the case for review. A federal judge ruled that Trump's appointment of Ken Cuccinelli as the acting head of U.S. citizenship and immigration was illegal. Judge Randolph Moss said Cuccinelli was never eligible to become the acting U.S. CIS chief "Quote because he never did and never will serve in a subordinate role, that is, as an assistant to any other U.S. CIS official. The upshot is that all policies enacted under Cuccinelli are now void. Cuccinelli had limited the amount of time immigrants could speak to lawyers and had pushed for a public charge immigration rule. Trump signed a deal with the Taliban and the war in Afghanistan. The agreement calls for the U.S. to pull all 12,000 troops out of the country within 14 months if the Taliban severs its ties with Al-Qaeda. Everybody's tired of war. It's been a very long journey. It's been a hard journey for everybody. Day 1139, March 3rd. Super Tuesday is today, 14 states will hold their primaries, 33% of all delegates are up for grabs. Alongside that backdrop, Amy Klobuchar became the latest to drop out of a rapidly winnowing Democratic field. Only Biden, Bloomberg, Sanders and Warren remain and Warren's campaign is likely to hinge on tonight's results It is expected she will lose in her own home state. The Federal Reserve made an emergency interest rate cut in an extraordinary attempt to contain economic fallout from the coronavirus. The Fed voted unanimously for their biggest single cut, a half point, and the first emergency rate move since the 2008 financial crisis. The move, which was intended to stabilize markets, instead sent them on a downward spiral. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the first major abortion case to come before the court since Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch were elevated. The case challenges a 2014 Louisiana law known as the Unsafe Abortion Protection Act which requires doctors who provide abortions to obtain admitting privileges from a nearby hospital. The law is identical to one from Texas the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. Trump continued his retaliation campaign by withdrawing his nomination for Pentagon Comptroller. Trump had nominated Elaine McCusker, but she fought Trump's decision last year to stall aid to Ukraine. Emails documenting her objections leaked in January. Candidates applying for a job in the Trump administration will now face a purity litmus test. They have to explain in writing what part of Trump's campaign message most appealed to them and why. And Trump told the crowd at a rally in North Carolina that it sounds like they made a deal when Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg dropped out and quote, both supported Sleepy Joe. No good. Quid pro quo. They made a deal. Impeach them. They should be impeached. Day 1140, March 4th. Joe Biden showed why he has been the front runner for the Democrats, sweeping the South and winning Texas in a Super Tuesday rout. Bernie Sanders is not done, but showed deep weakness in the Northeast and South, and kids did not come out to cast ballots for Sanders. Sanders, however, did edge Biden to California, giving him an important prize. In the aftermath, Mike Bloomberg bowed out. Senator Liz Warren is expected to enter campaign as well. Jeff Sessions was forced into a runoff for his old Senate seat in Alabama. Trump taunted him, tweeting, quote, This is what happens to someone who loyally gets appointed attorney general of the United States and then doesn't have the wisdom or courage to stare down and end the phony Russia witch hunt, recuses himself on first day in office, and the Mueller scam begins. The tweet actually confirmed one of the Mueller report's key findings about Trump's efforts to obstruct justice. Presidents, of Coast are not supposed to direct their own attorney general to end specific investigations, especially when they directly involve their own campaign. 19 states have sued to block Trump's diversion of $3.8 billion from the Pentagon to the border wall. The states, which include Illinois, argue that redistricting money already allocated by lawmakers violates Congress's appropriation powers and hurts states' finances. The United States conducted an airstrike against Taliban fighters in Afghanistan just days after signing a peace deal. Taliban fighters were reportedly actively attacking a government checkpoint. The head of the World Health Organization dramatically revised upwards the global mortality rate for the new coronavirus to 3.4%. By comparison, the Spanish influenza epidemic that killed 50 million people worldwide in 1919 had a 2% mortality rate. The seasonal flu generally kills far fewer than 1%. Locally, a patient at UFC thought to have the virus has now tested negative. Trump claimed Obama made it harder for his administration to respond to the coronavirus outbreak. Claiming that a decision was very detrimental and it meant the USA could not provide widespread testing for the virus, he blamed Obama. This appears to be completely untrue. Day 1141, March 5th. Trump said he would withhold money from so-called sanctuary cities after a U.S. court said that he could block federal law enforcement funds to states that do not cooperate with federal immigration authorities. In a tweet, Trump said, quote, as per recent federal court ruling, the federal government will be withholding funds from sanctuary cities. They should change their status and go non-sanctuary. Do not protect criminals. Senator Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the presidential race. That ended a run defined by an avalanche of policy plans aiming to pull the Democratic Party to the left. Warren was briefly a frontrunner in the race, but voters did not warm to her. She was destroyed on Super Tuesday. The International Criminal Court has ruled it could open an investigation into allegations of U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. The United States does not recognize the ICC's jurisdiction. The ICC claims it has gathered enough evidence to prove that U.S. forces committed acts of torture, rape, and sexual violence in 2003 and 2004, and later at CIA black sites in Europe. The Justice Department charged the Defense Department contractor with espionage. Miriam Thompson allegedly shared classified information with a Lebanese national with ties to the terror group Hezbollah. The information concerned troop movements. Thompson could face life in jail. Only 34% of Americans are confident that their votes in the presidential election will be accurately counted. Michael Bloomberg spent $500 million on his failed presidential campaign. Joe Biden now has a 30% chance of clinching the Democratic nomination. Bernie Sanders has a 7% chance. Trump's approval rating continues to fall. It is 41% this week. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Chuck Mertz spoke to Chuja Hayter about the Democratic primaries ahead of Super Tuesday. Hayter discussed the corrosive effect of money on the party, how Michael Bloomberg is trying to buy the nomination, and why billionaires apparently feel entitled to have their voices drown out everyone else. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m.
8: Here to talk with us about the chance of a contested convention and what that says about the Democratic Party, writer at large, roving correspondent for The Outline, Shuja Hyder, posted the article following last week's Democratic presidential uh, candidate debate at The Outline entitled, The World's Biggest Threat to Democracy is the Democratic Party. You can find The Outline at TheOutline.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Shuja.
9: Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me.
8: We're also going to be talking about another article you wrote right uh, after the Iowa caucus, which was entitled Just Because Your Paranoid Doesn't Mean They Did Not Rig the Iowa Caucus. We hope to get to that as well. You can find, uh, you know, Chuja is also at Viewpoint Magazine. You can find viewpointmag.com. And is it really true that John Podoretz, a former Reagan and George H.W. Bush speechwriter, who is also the editor at the right-wing publication commentary and a journal columnist at the New York Post, called you a clownish commie idiot. Is that really true?
9: That is a direct quote He took a break uh, In between ordering Burgers online And uh, had that Description of me
8: (laughs) That is fantastic How do you know He was ordering Burgers online
9: Oh he posts about it That's that's documented
8: (laughs) That's hilarious You write The Democratic debate Last Wednesday In Nevada Has got to be The rowdiest Any group of Democratic politicians Has ever gotten Outside of a wine cave I just want to stay On wine cave For a second (laughs) It's a nice shot At the elitist nature Of the political class That dominates the Democrats So before we even Get into what happened last week All of them are millionaires Some much more than others, except one And that person is Pete Buttigieg Does that mean that Pete, does that put him outside The wine cave without the elite's interest at heart?
9: I mean, he's Right inside of the wine cave He's, you know uh, He's probably out of all of the candidates Shown the most uh, uh, Capitulation towards Catering towards the elite's Uh, And that wine cave uh, fundraiser was was the epitome of that. Um, But you know, I mean, he's consistently uh, rejected the idea of severing uh, Democratic Party politics from corporate interference. He openly talks about how we need to be inclusive of billionaires. You know, he's he's he wants to take money from anyone who will give it to him, uh, while downplaying the uh, effects of that influence on uh, the the political process.
8: You write the debate last week was mostly punctuated by deepening divisions Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's righteous rage against former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg And Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar's less principled spite for South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg after a typically smug homily from Buttigieg Bloomberg himself was booed by the crowd more than I have ever witnessed at a political uh, event not involving our current president. Before last Wednesday's debate, I hadn't watched one second of any debate yet during this nomination process. I watched because I wanted to see and hear how much Bloomberg would inevitably fail. And he did not reach the (laughs) heights of my very, very, very low expectations. He was way worse than I could have imagined. and I thought he was going to be awful. Can Bloomberg... Let's take that out. Can anyone be really bad at the debates and still win a nomination? Because considering the format, are the debates a good way to determine the nominees for president? And then during the general, the president of the United States, can you lose debates and win elections? And are debates a good exercise in democracy?
9: That's an interesting question. I mean, I I think that a lot of us were expecting that the debate would be the first time the american public really got to gauge bloomberg's persona uh which you know hadn't really been exposed to the to the other candidates or to public uh evaluation uh but at the same time i don't know the statistics on this but i don't know how much voters uh, pay attention to this stuff the way those of us who are, you know, keeping track of the political process do. I do know that Bloomberg has invested many times the amount of money any other candidate has in advertising. And I think that the majority of voters, I believe there is data on this, uh, react to TV advertising, um, much more so than they do the news. And, you know, when, when I see, when I watch TV and I, I see Bloomberg ads all the time uh, and, you know, they show him, with President Obama, uh, you know, edited in a way that it looks like Obama endorsed him, and a lot of people apparently, you know, anecdotal evidence is that people are believing that Obama has endorsed Bloomberg when he hasn't actually made an endorsement. Uh, so I think you know, money talks, and that's uh, the sad truth of our political process.
8: And do you think debates are a good process for determining who should be the next, nom- the next nominee or the next president of the
7: United States?
9: I mean, they're certainly better than the alternative. Uh, I I think that the uh, the the what the process should look like if it was democratic is that all the candidates should have to make a uh, uh, a pitch for themselves in public, and then the rank and file membership of the party of uh, uh, voters uh, who will vote in the general election get to decide on a nominee through through primaries. Uh, and you know, as as we're we're getting to that's unfortunately not the way it works not really the way it's ever worked
1: the best,
10: Dougal's towing has recently had its license reinstated by court appeal, despite notoriety for its predatory practices. Predatory, being in quotes here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year ago, uh, th- this company, which had been in operation for several decades, mm-hmm. uh, very infamous, yes. uh, it had its business license revoked. Uh, yeah, after, you know it when a when a when a Dougal truck comes, you know, rolling down your street. Everyone they shut their doors. <laughs> um, they roll. They put down their blinds. Uh, if you're they in race your car, off. they yeah, they blow red lights. Exactly. Exactly, because it, they they did have a a, a wide uh, a very strong notoriety in the in the communities in which it was active, uh, and essentially after several two decades of complaints um, for these allegedly illegal practices, a judge declared uh, revoked the business license, but it has been reinstated mm-hmm. uh, for re- unclear reasons. Uh, so there are a number of – a number of these practices that took place that led to this. Um, uh, I, going through a, a few mentions on the list, there's a large one. Uh, they were known for truckless towing wherein essentially a an employee would uh, would find a way to get into the car and access uh, – activate the engine mm-hmm. without the key and then drive it away. That was something they were known for. Um if they couldn't tow your car, they would use uh, something that's known as the eel. And uh, Now, the eel is similar to the boot um, in that it, it, it restricts movement sure. of the vehicle. But instead of immobilizing the wheel, it actually would go into under the hood sure. onto the battery and drain it. And uh, if you would attempt if, – if anyone were to attempt to remove the eel who was not um, – did not have the proper right. credentials to do so, it would shock them. Uh, there there's number of injuries related to that. Yeah. Um, there were some reports of food trucks that would be towed. Uh, the owner would go pay the money to get the food truck back and all the food would be gone. Um, and one individual – uh Who spoke under the condition of anonymity, even claimed that they had to pay an additional thousand dollars on top of their normal fees to have an employee of Dougal's towing remove the quote kilo of cocaine we hid in the vehicle uh undisclosed yes um uh, they they so is the idea that they that they told them we've hit a kilo of cocaine there, and we're not going to remove it until. We, you, pay us this amount of money. Yes. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Schellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpin' Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>